Well, good morning. Have you guys ever had a video introduction before? Uh, I have not. Um, kind of feels a little bit awkward here, but uh, anyway, glad that I could be here with you this morning. Obviously, our lead pastor, he will be back with us next Sunday, and so it's my privilege we would open up God's Word. If you haven't met me before, my name is Scott, and uh, I'm just grateful to be with you. But I do have to say this right off the bat, um, it's with a heavy heart that I come to you this morning, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. I mean, there's a lot of sadness and pain and brokenness that we are seeing and we're experiencing in our world, and I mean, it hurts my heart, as I'm sure it does yours. Um, but I also want you to know this, that it's this, none of these things that we are seeing um, is a surprise to God. And not only that, but, but God is with us, he's for us, and he loves us a ton. And I can't think of any better place to be than right here in God's house with God's people seeking God's voice and seeking to understand his will for our lives together. And uh, if you're new with us, we launched into a series called Restore. In the last couple of weeks, we looked at a couple of psalms as a, as a, as a purpose of, of really seeking God more than anything else to restore our hearts, to restore our souls. But if we were to stop there, of having our restoration just be inward, we would miss out on all that God has for us in this desire for restoration. And so this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to move restoration more to outward, um, really seeking God and, and asking for God to bring restoration to our neighbors, to our city, and even to our world. And so we're going to look at a couple of passages um, really through the lens of two prophets. And so this morning... We're going to look at Jeremiah 29. So you guys go ahead and turn there with me. And most of you are probably familiar with at least one verse within this passage of Scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11. Some of you can probably quote it by heart. Right, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, right? You guys know that passage of Scripture? Um, it might be on a, you know, maybe for a sun, like a sunset picture on your, on, your, uh, on your wall. For us, it was like a, actually we had a kind of a banner that was hanging, Jeremiah 20 and 11, that uh, I think it might even still be in our home where my parents are right now. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not familiar with this verse, man, this is a good, good passage. Not just a verse, not just a promise, but really the whole entire passage that we're going to look at this morning. Jeremiah 29, it's wonderful because it reveals to us God's heart. His heart for us as his people, his heart for our city, his heart for our world. But I think what even makes more extraordinary this promise is the fact that, that there, the context that it's given to us, it is a pretty rough context. Um, I've been doing my quiet times through the book of Jeremiah the last couple of months, and there is a lot of doom and gloom um, in the book of Jeremiah. In fact, when God calls Jeremiah in chapter 1 to be his prophet, he says, all right, Jeremiah, here's your task. You're going to be a prophet. You're going to declare that my judgment is coming upon those who are not following after me. You're going to warn them that if they would repent, then I would not bring upon my judgment. But just want to give you a heads up. They are not going to listen to you. They are not going to respond to you. And you're going to keep proclaiming my judgment over and over and over again. And I'm sure Jeremiah's like, yay, sign me up for that one. Absolutely. But as we know, the prophet Jeremiah, he does step in. He does proclaim God's judgment, and for 40 years, he warns the people that God's judgment is coming. And for 40 years, just like God promised, Jeremiah's message to repent, it fell on deaf ears. 
And so beginning in 597 BC, God sent King Nebuchadnezzar and the nation of Babylon upon the city and the, the, the nation of Judah. And they started by sending waves of exiles from Jerusalem over into Babylon, away from their homes, away from their customs, away from their friends, away from their family, away from their way of life. And it began particularly with leaders, as we'll see here in Jeremiah 29. But as you can imagine, I mean, man, life was just incredibly hard for these exiles. I mean, they once had power and influence, and now they've lost all power and influence. They they were now living in a foreign land that was deeply pagan. It was full of sin and idolatry. They were hundreds of miles away from home. But worst of all, I mean, they felt alone. They were not only removed from their community, but they, they felt very much alone, even tempted to believe that God had forgotten them, that he no longer cared for them, or that maybe he was just powerless enough that he couldn't rescue them. In so many ways, I mean, these Jewish exiles, they felt completely in the dark. I mean, they were pressed in by all sides by a godless culture, and they were particularly feeling abandoned, left to themselves to deal with their sin and their suffering. Does that sound familiar to you guys? Uh, I mean, we too, we live in a secular age. It's increasingly helping us to feel like we are foreigners and we're exiles, a place where our values, where our beliefs, where our culture, where our language, where our way of life, where where all of the things that we have held so dear are now becoming increasingly unpopular. They're seen as intelligent, unintelligent, and we're even unwelcomed a lot of times by our culture. We feel as if we're losing our status, our comfort, our influence, and we are possibly tempted to believe, just like these Jewish exiles in Babylon, that God is no longer with us, and we're tempted to get angry or to get anxious and fearful, or just to just simply like kind of numb out and just sort of tap out and say, well, I'm just going to pull out. I'm not going to be involved anymore. I'm going to give up. If you're feeling that place today, um, God has a word for you just like he did for the Babylonian exiles in this time period so long ago. It's like a, it's like a light that's shining in the middle of the darkness is this bright passage in Jeremiah 29. And so without further ado, let's go ahead and stand. And we're going to read these verses together. Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 1. And we're going to go through verse 14. So listen to God's word to the Babylonian exiles and even to us who are often feeling like we're in exile right here, right now. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you in exile. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would um, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that that longs to understand and know you and your word better. I pray, God, that you would speak to us, that you would comfort us, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us boldness and courage to step into the gaps where your kingdom has not come and your will has not been done the way that it is in heaven. God, would you give us a heart for the city? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can take your seats. And uh, today's sermon is entitled, For the City. It's really simple. And I want us to look at three instructions and then one big, big promise that God has given to his people who were in exile in Babylon that we can apply to our lives right here, right now in Tallahassee, Florida. And so right off the bat, Jeremiah's first instruction that he gives to the Babylonian exiles is to plant roots in the city. Verse five, read it one more time. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now for us, these instructions, they probably would make a lot of sense, right? And we've, we've built families, we've, we've built communities, we've sought to, to, to find jobs and to you know, kind of plant roots here in Tallahassee. But for this group of Jewish exiles, I mean, this would have been absolutely a big surprise to them. Plant roots? This is not our home. These are not our people. This is not our king. I mean, why would we plant roots here? It's probably the way we would respond to Jeremiah. In fact, they were even told by other prophets to kind of keep a distance, to not step in, to not unpack their bags because very quickly they're going to return back to Jerusalem. But Jeremiah says, no, that's not truth. That is not the case. Those are false prophets that are telling you these things. Instead, he said, no, your, your stay is not going to be short. And so I want you to take up residence. I want you, to, want you to build a garden. I want you to get married. I want you to have kids. I want you to raise a family. I want you to get a job. I want you to multiply. I want you to fill the city. I want you to get your hands dirty and get to work. That might echo for you guys, if you remember back from our study of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, the first command that God gives to his people. He says, I want you to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, be my image bearers, demonstrate through your good words and your good deeds who I am. Show this to, in, your, in your homes, in your schools, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your city. Seek a, seek a godly marriage, raise a godly family. Have a godly influence. In other words, I want you to plant deep roots in this city wherever I send you with a deep faith in your God. 
Now, for many of us, we have sought to do that, right? But there's another reminder that Jeremiah wants to give to the Babylonian exiles that he wants to give to us as well. It's this. It's that your city that you dwell in, it's not your ultimate home. Look at verse 10. He says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and I will bring you back to this place. In other words, I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. So these Jewish exiles, they were to take up residence all the while knowing that Babylon was not their final destination. It was not their home. They were to see themselves as sort of these resident aliens, citizens of one country, while making their home in another. In other words, don't settle there permanently. And don't take on the values of that city, but instead live as citizens of another city. If you guys remember back to our study of 1 Peter over the summer, the Apostle Peter, he calls us as Christians, sojourners and exiles, strangers and aliens. In other words, the place that we live, the place that we work, the place that we study, it's not our ultimate home. We do have a home temporarily. It's a Babylon, and so we are to unpack our bags. But at the same time, it's not our ultimate home. We are citizens of another city The way that the writer of Hebrews calls it, he says, it's a heavenly city whose author and builder is God. And it's the culture and the values of that city that you define how you and I live in this one. This is really interesting. When this promise is given to these exiles, they're told, guys, you're going to have to wait for 70 years. And so a lot of these exiles, they would have never actually gone back to Jerusalem. And so what is the hope for them? It's not a temporary city of Jerusalem that's their ultimate home either. Their ultimate home is a heavenly city, and it's our hope as well. And so we're to plant roots in this city while at the same time, it's not our ultimate home. I think back when we were, if you guys didn't know this, we as a church, we kind of wandered around a little bit in the wilderness for a long time. Uh, We were meeting a lot of different places, but finally we, we moved here into this facility Super excited to finally plant some roots into a neighborhood, build some trust, establish relationships. And God has blessed this place that we have planted. But at the same time, if you remember back when we first started meeting here, we said, but we are sojourners. This is not our ultimate home. We we don't want to become settlers. We want to be on mission. And so that leads us to instruction number two. The prophet Jeremiah, he says not only to plant roots in the city, but he says in verse 7, he says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your your welfare. So we are to seek the welfare of the city in which we live. If we're not careful, we can plant these roots in our city, but then we can sort of only seek out our own benefit, our own blessings, our own welfare, and not orient our hearts and our actions towards the welfare of others. And kind of become this holy huddle that's removed from society. But Jeremiah, he said to the, the Jerusalem, excuse me, the, these Jewish exiles, he said, your commitment should not just be for your own welfare, but for the welfare and the blessing of others. And that word welfare, by the way, in verse 7, seek the welfare, um, it's the Hebrew word shalom. And a lot of times it can be translated peace. But it's even bigger and grander than that. In fact, look at uh, Cornelius Plattinga. He describes it this way. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. 
a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Pastor Josh, our pastor over at the East Congregation, he says, shalom is where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. Physically, relationally, emotionally, financially, spiritually, where we are completely whole, or we like to use the word restored. But as we know, ever since sin entered into the world, that shalom was broken. It was like a glass that fell on the floor and just shattered in a million pieces. Broken hearts, broken dreams, broken relationships, broken communities, broken countries, a broken world. We lost our shalom at the fall. But as we know, that's not the end of the story. God did not leave us in the fall. In fact, he entered into our world and he said, I am making all things new. I want to bring wholeness to your brokenness. I want to bring peace to your chaos. I want to bring restoration to your weary souls. I want to bring shalom. And for those who give their lives to this king, this king Jesus, we submit our lives to his rule and his reign. We, we can experience this peace. We can experience this shalom. Yes, not Completely, not perfectly in this life, but deeply and personally. And we can be ambassadors for this shalom to bring wholeness to brokenness and peace to chaos, to bring hope to a broken, sinful world. One family, one person, one conversation at a time. But I want you to know something about God's shalom. If you guys didn't know this, his sense of peace, his sense of wholeness, it looks different than why we might expect it. You know, when Jesus came, right, when he came to bring about shalom, he didn't come to bring about through political power or fame or, or capitalizing on fear. Instead, he came to bring about shalom through weakness, through kindness, through gentleness, through humility, through sacrificial love. And he particularly focused his efforts on the weak, on the vulnerable, on the orphans, on the widows, on the poor. This was the heart of God demonstrated to us, and this is to be our heart in our city. In his book, um, The Rise of Christianity, there was this American sociologist, Rodney Stark. He's actually an agnostic, and he was trying to figure out, like, how in the world did Christianity grow through the first and second century in Roman culture? very similar to the Babylonian culture that God was writing to these exiles in. And this is what he found. He said, in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world, Christianity served as a revitalization movement to cities filled with the homeless and impoverished. Christianity offered charity as well as hope to cities filled with newcomers and strangers. Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments to cities torn by violent ethnic strife. Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity and to citizens faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes. Christianity offered service. Does that sound familiar to you guys? I mean, that is the culture that we live in right here, right now. He said, he, he said the Christians were like a fireman and when everyone else was kind of running out of the fire, running away from the fire, the Christians stepped in to the fire to rescue the broken and the vulnerable, to risk their lives to save others, to step into that gap. 
Obviously, I didn't tell the whole story. This is from an agnostic's perspective, but we know and we, we can resonate with this. Why did Christianity flourish in a pagan culture in Rome? Why did it, why did it begin to flourish in Babylon? It's because they sought the shalom of the city. They brought wholeness to those who were broken, brought community to the isolated, brought peace to the weary and heavy laden by following their King Jesus who loved and lived for the sake of others rather than for himself. And that is our invitation this morning. So I want to ask you a question. How are you doing? How are you doing at this endeavor to seek the welfare of our city in this way? Do you have an eye and a heart towards those who are particularly vulnerable and needy? Are you seeking to bring God's shalom and peace to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your friends, particularly to the outcasts, to the vulnerable, to the broken? As you consider that question, can I just encourage you? I mean, one of my favorite things about being a pastor is I get an up-close and personal view of what I would call just heroic stories in our church. Um, Many of you right here in this room have welcomed orphans into your home through adoption and foster care. Others of you have sought to to bring about restoration to broken relationships through our re-engage and our restore ministries. Um, Others of you, you're on the benevolence team that provides financial help to those who are particularly hurting without a job and without financial help. Some of you even yesterday were in the parking lot handing out groceries to roughly 500 families in our community. Amazing. So grateful for that. And yet God says, I want you to do more. And for many of you might be like, well, Scott, uh, Pastor Scott, like that's not me. I'm not, I'm not involved in that way. Well, hey, I've got good news for you. We are going to introduce some gospel initiatives for our city that you can be involved with. And so just listen up, pay attention this week, next week, the following weeks, as we talk to you more about how you can get involved. All right, so seek the welfare of the city. Last but not least, the last instruction that Jeremiah gives is to pray for the city. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, context is really key once again. Um, right here in this passage, uh, the, Jeremiah, excuse me, the, um, the Babylonian exiles, they would have expected Jeremiah to say something like, pray for the shalom or pray for the welfare, pray for the peace of the city of Jerusalem. In fact, that's what... Psalm 122, one of the psalms of ascent, they would, they would sing on their way to Jerusalem every year as they would go up to festivals. They would pray for the shalom, for the peace of the city. And so that's what they would have expected Jeremiah to say here. But Jeremiah says, no, I want you to pray for the welfare of the city of your enemies. They'd be like, wait, wait, no, you're crazy. Pray for my enemies. Pray for the ones who have captured us, who have destroyed us, who have plundered us, who have exiled us, who have even murdered some of us? Are you crazy? No way. We want justice, not mercy. This would have been crazy to the exiles. And yet for those of us who know our Bibles well, what does Jesus say? Matthew 5, 44, he says, pray for those who persecute you, love your enemies, and pray for them. Bring their needs, just not just your needs, before your heavenly Father. Ask that God would bring about his blessing upon them and not just upon you. Pray that God would capture and change their hearts as he has done for you. 
But Pastor Scott, you don't know my enemies. You don't know how I've been hurt. You don't know how I've been, been broken. You don't, you don't know what these enemies are like. But God instructs us. He says, when you seek the welfare of your enemies, when you pray for them, you're going to find your welfare as well. You see, your heart will slowly but surely begin to turn into my heart. And shalom will come to your soul. It will come to your relationships. And it will come to your enemies. And they'll become your friends. And they'll become the friends of God. And Tim Keller, when he was looking at how um, Christianity has grown, and, and, and he looked particularly at revivals throughout the history of the church, uh, and he said there were some common denominators across these revivals. And one of them is this. He said that there was kingdom-centered prayer. And so he talked about kind of three characteristics of kingdom-centered prayer that I just want to highlight for you this morning. He said this. He said, kingdom-centered prayer first begins with a request for grace to confess sins and humble ourselves. In other words, right off the bat, we come before God with, with hearts to say, I am broken. I am sinful. I am far apart from you, God. Would you please forgive me of being selfish, of being self-oriented and self-reliant? Would you please forgive me of being far apart from you? Would you please restore my soul? Forgive me. Kingdom-centered prayer doesn't just begin with a kingdom within our soul. It then begins to lead then to a compassion and zeal for the flourishing of the church. That word for flourishing, again, it's shalom. It's a longing for the church, for God's kingdom to flourish on earth the way it is in heaven. It's a longing for, for blessing to come about upon God's people, that the body of Christ would be strengthened, renewed. And we'd have a zeal for this. But it doesn't just... In there, most importantly, last but not least, kingdom-centered prayer includes a yearning to know God, to see his face, to see his glory. Say, God, more than anything else, I, I don't want just your kingdom to come. I don't just want for restoration out there. I want, I want more than anything else just to see your face. I just want to see you as my king. I want, I want to know you. I want to, I want to love you. I want to experience you. It's what we've been talking about these last couple of weeks where we want more than anything else for restoration to happen within our souls. And so Four Oaks, that's what we did this past Thursday for First Thursday Prayer. So we do every time we gather for first days of prayer, we are asking God, God, bring your kingdom on earth the way that it is in heaven. And it's long for this as we enter the new year that we would pursue this sort of kingdom-centered prayer personally, corporately, that we would long for God to move. God, make it so. Restore us, we pray. All right, so these are the three instructions that God gives to his Babylonian exiles that can be certainly applied to us as exiles right here in Tallahassee, Florida, to plant roots, to seek welfare, and to pray for our city. But none of these things, if we were to just do them in our own strength, <laughs> we would get tired real quick, right? And I love the fact that God doesn't leave us just with a set of commands. He also gives us this one big promise to really undergird and to strengthen and provide a foundation for us that our prayers, that our efforts will not go for naught. They will be empowered. God will bring his kingdom on earth the way that it is in heaven. One big promise for us found in verses 11 through 14. So verse 11, first God says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
And what's interesting is that God's plans includes the exile. Verse 4, verse 7, verse 14, God says it was not Babylon, but it was God that sent his people into exile. So they weren't just there by accident. Um, There wasn't even there because like Nebuchadnezzar wanted Nebuchadnezzar. There we go. He wasn't trying to overthrow and take over the world. They were there in exile because God sent them there. He had plans for them. And man, that's hard. I'm sure that was hard for these exiles to experience and to, to receive that news. But at the same time, it's comforting too, because that means that every single aspect of our lives, all of even our suffering, our, our struggles, our hardships are all within the plans of God. We're not here by accident. God's not like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean for that to happen. Uh, all right, now it's kind of up to you. It's, it's in your hands now. Hopefully you can make it. No, he says, no, you are safely and securely in my hands. Everything that happens to you comes through the filter of my plans for you. All that you're going through is ordained by me. And not just that, but it's ordained for a purpose. Look at the purpose here. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness. Some of your versions might say plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's that same word once again, shalom. And here's what's interesting. Um, when, the, when the people were sent into exile to Babylon, why? Why were they sent there? They were not sent there because they were whole. They were sent there because they were broken and rebellious. They were immoral. They were idolatrous. They were were distant from God. But during that time of exile, God began to draw them back to himself. They started reading and studying God's word once again. They started spending time with him. They started growing in godly character. They started developing a vibrant, faith-filled community that was committed not just to their own welfare, but to the welfare of others. You guys remember Daniel the prophet, right? He's a fulfillment of these plans. Esther the queen, they sought God's plans for the welfare of their city and not just for themselves. They, they longed to see shalom take place in the community in which they lived. In the same way, God wants to use these hard times, these dark times, these suffering, and even sometimes where we feel like exiles for good purposes to grow our faith, to refine our character, and to help us to shine a light that's even brighter we're in the middle of the darkness. To bring shalom on earth the way that is in heaven. But you know the biggest thing about shalom, it's not just like peaceful relationships or a peaceful world. More than anything else, God's best purpose, his ultimate shalom, look at verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. What's God's ultimate shalom? It's himself. He's our peace. He's our satisfaction. He's our joy. You know, in Jeremiah 2, 32, God told the people through the prophet Jeremiah, he said, my people have forgotten me days without number. But then here, Jeremiah 29, you know what God says? But I've not forgotten you. 
I have good plans for you. I love you. And more than anything else, I want to have a relationship with you. I long to have intimacy with you. I want to be shalom for you. And here's what's even more amazing. I mean, this promise, this promise is made to rebellious people. I mean, God could have easily just been like, listen, I'm tired of you. You just keep rebelling over and over and over again. But instead he says, no, even though you're rebelling against me, my plans are still for you're good. I long for you. Even when you're in exile, I long for you to be at home with me. I was reading this morning in Lamentations 5, which goes along with Jeremiah. Um, and there's this last little verse. I was reading this morning. I was just struck by it, where we think it's Jeremiah that's saying this lament, um, but it's definitely the people that were in this Babylonian captivity And it says, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. What's the heart's cry of the exiles? God, more than anything else, would you just help us to be restored with you? Would you help us to experience wholeness with you? And then out of that experience of restoration, it would spill over into restoration everywhere else. Here's what's even more amazing that everywhere else that I was just talking about, that's where we find the last part of the big promise of God in verse 14. He tells Judah, he says that one day I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now there was a partial fulfillment of this whenever the Jerusalem, whenever the captives were brought back to Jerusalem 70 years later. But it was only partially fulfilled. You see that word, restore your fortunes? That is a complete restoration that God is talking about. And it's not just made to the people of Judah. In my time in Jeremiah of the last couple of months, that promise is also made to the nation of Moab. It's made to the nation of Ammon. It's made to the nation of Elam. What's the point? God is saying that one day, one day, There will be no more exiles. One day all the suffering and all the exile of all God's people from all the nations will be over. One day all our fortunes will be restored. We'll be restored not just spiritually, but but financially and relationally and physically and emotionally. In every single way, we will experience restoration. Just like Cornelius Platting, a defined shalom, we will experience universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs where our Creator and our Savior welcomes us into joyful wonder forever and ever and ever and ever. That's why our gospel partners are around the world right now, because they want to see this plan of restoration come to other nations. They want to see one kingdom under the rule of King Jesus take place. One conversation, one relationship, one family at a time. Pastor Scott, you might say, I might say like, well, what, what, uh, how do I know for sure that this is going to happen? I mean, what's the guarantee that this promise is really going to be fulfilled? My answer, Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. You see, he's the one that purchased these promises for us with his very own blood. He's the one who left the safety of his world to become an exile in another place. 
He's the one who moved into a neighborhood and planted roots in a city. He's the one who looked to the needs, not of himself, but to the needs of others. He's the one who sought out particularly the weak and the vulnerable, the poor, the broken, the orphans, the widows. He's the one who pursued the outcasts. He's the one who brought hope to the helpless, healing to the sick, great riches to the poor. He's the one who gave up his life ultimately by saying, I don't want the shalom for myself. I'm going to experience instead the wrath of God for all of your sin. I'm going to know no shalom, no peace, so that you can always know shalom and no peace through me. And did it because he loves us. But here's his most important thing. Did Jesus stay dead? No. He rose from the dead to accomplish the purposes of God. And he now promised, what did he promise to his disciples? He said, I am preparing a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. That you can experience my shalom. Now go. Be my ambassadors. Be my disciples. Be my people who seek to live and to love just like I have lived and loved until I bring my kingdom perfectly, completely, fully, eternally, forever and ever and ever. Amen? So let's be for the city. Let's be for our world, knowing that in the end, Jesus wins and we win with him. Let's pray.